This is Warrior Podcast, introducing warriors to the warrior god. I'm your host, Elizabeth Andrade, here with Connor Shanahan. Last week, we promised you some controversy. We're here to deliver that promise today. The age of the earth. Hot and fresh on a platter, delivering some controversy just for you. This is what we mentioned last week, that as you begin to talk about creation, as you begin to look closely at Genesis 1, there's some hot topics that come up, some big questions that come up. Seven days? Six days? 24-hour days? Billions of years? 6,000 years? What are we to do? What is it? What is it? What are we to do? So uh, our goal here, again, take a deep breath. It's all going to be all right. We're going we're gonna to walk through this process together, ladies and gentlemen. Warriors alike, we're going to band together, band of brothers, and get through this episode together. But here's our heart. Bottom line up front, here's what we're trying to do. We are trying to present several, at least four, faithful options of looking at Genesis 1. Okay? Four is a pretty good number. Four is a solid number. Different options here. The reason why we're going to present several faithful options and why we want to emphasize that these are faithful options is because, again, we get so heated. We get so heated on these secondary issues. Uh, If you missed last week's episode, please hit the pause button right now. Go back. Look at the episode we did last week where we covered the essentials of creation. We talked about the Trinity. We talked about the Imago Dei. And we talked about God's design for human flourishing. Those are the essentials of creation. And today we're going to talk about things that are very important. But maybe not essential. Maybe not essential. And, and we'd probably say definitely not essential. If there's anything I've learned from my journey as a Christian is that there is a lot of things that we will disagree on and still be Christians. Absolutely. And, and this might be a good time to introduce that state versus national border idea that, that as Christians, right, we are kind of... Now, stay with me. This is not the best example, but it's it's a example that's hopefully... I think it's a pretty good example. I hope so. As Christians, we, we, we all unite under a national boundary. And that national boundary includes the essential beliefs of our faith, such as the doctrine of the Trinity, such as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation by grace through faith. All right? These are some of the essential things that if you don't believe those... You're not a Christian. You're a different religion. And listen, that's your prerogative. We're going to try to convince you to join our team. We love you. We love you. We're going to pray for you. and We're going to be friends with you anyway. We can still kick it. We're cool. But those are the essentials. So if you go outside of those things, you're not one of us, quote unquote. Uh, You're not a Christian. But we'll still go out to dinner with you. We'd still love to take you out to dinner. Our treat. All right. Hit us up on our website, www.wgmhq.org. And we'll arrange that. Beyond that, beyond those essential things, there are there are many secondary issues that are a bit more confusing in Scripture. There are things within the national boundaries that people can land in different places on. We would just maybe, in this example, we'd say that those are state borders. So, for example, I'm from Connecticut, born and raised, shout out to New England, yet I now find myself in, in the greatest state in the nation. God's country. Texas. Dallas, Texas, the heartbeat of God's country. And, uh, man, I've got to be honest, these Texans are weird, all right? Don't crucify me. Don't burn me at the stake. But I'm from a different state. I'm holding my tongue here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Show me some grace. <laughs> for, for, the, for the sake of the example, show me some grace. Some of the cultural things in Texas are strange to me. However, if I took you, Elizabeth, to Connecticut, you would think that many of the things that we do up in the nutmeg state, up in the Constitution state, are strange. Like what? Uh, we don't talk. You don't, you don't talk to people. Like if you're walking down the sidewalk, yeah. If if you're walking down the sidewalk, if you're in New York city or if you're in any new England city and you're walking down the sidewalk and and another human being is, is walking your direction, you do not acknowledge them. You do not look at them and you do not speak to them. 
Whereas down here in Texas, you can't walk past someone without being asked to share your testimony and your life story. <laughs> hey, how you doing? Howdy, y'all. In Connecticut, you Do just- Do you know Jesus? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Connecticut, you put the headphones in, you keep on cruising. That's just one example. But in, in this, this theological example on state issues, so like I can live in Connecticut and be cool and believe what I believe there, but also reap the benefits of living within the same nation because we're all on the same team. And in the same way, theologically, you can land on different in different places on secondary issues that are not essential, such as what we're going to talk about today, the age of the earth. You can land on, on one side of the spectrum and live in one state in, in a young earth state. And you can land on the other side of the spectrum and live in an old earth state or uh, some areas in between that we'll talk about. But those are not essential things. I don't think those are worth being divisive over. They're not worth fighting over because there's mystery here. We can show each other some grace because God's the only one who knows the answer. He does. God knows. And, and we can take our best guesses um, from scripture. But but in some things, such as the age of the earth, there's not a clear cut answer. So there's freedom to examine the evidence, examine the scriptures and land where you land, knowing that we're all Christians. We all can rally around the essentials and we don't have to fight over this issue. I don't think I've ever actually heard four options here. So I'm kind of interested to figure out, you say you have four faithful options to bring to the table. Yes. Let's go ahead and dive into those. Let's go ahead and dive in. All right. Option number one. Okay. And again, this is all under the umbrella of secondary issues. Buckle your seatbelt. We can land anywhere on these four issues. You can. It's okay. You could still be a Christian. Here's option one. Option one in understanding the age of the earth, understanding some of these questions that arise from reading Genesis one is... To view Genesis 1 as a literal, most literal, 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week creation week. So that's seven days. Seven days, consisting of 24-hour days, and uh, this would be the young earth crowd. So if you believe that that this is, that Genesis 1 details a, a strictly literal creative period, again, 24-hour days in a seven-day work week, you can then trace the genealogies that we see throughout Scripture and you could pin the age of the earth somewhere between six and 10,000 years old. So these Christians who hold this view are faithful Christians. They're trying to interpret the Bible. And uh, we'll get into some of the reasons why you might hold this view biblically. But we would simply, if we're going to brand this group, we're going to call it the young earth view or the young earth creationist view. So, what, so what's, the, what's the scripture behind this one? Yes. Yeah, so if we're going to look at Genesis 1, um, they're going to see... I mean, we're all trying to make sense of the same text here. So as we look through Genesis chapter one, we're going to see like starting in verse three, we see the creation begin in a sense. We see, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Verse four says, God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was evening and morning one day. Now, the natural question arises, what do we make of that word day? Do we think it's literal 24 hours or or? And as we get to some other views, we'll see what they make of it. But but in this view, if we're going to be the young earth, literal 24-7 creation, um, they're going to look at this word day, which in Hebrew is yom. Now, yom. This is your second language lesson of the day. This is. This is. If you are with us last week, you are already a, a master in Hebrew. So you already know this. You already know where I'm about to go. Intermediate Hebrew. Come on. <laughs> come on, somebody. A plus plus. You know already that the word yom in Hebrew. Almost. Almost always almost always means 24-hour day. At WGM, we believe in being charitable. And you often hear a lot of young earth creationists say that yom always means 24-hour day. That's not exactly true. 
It almost always, almost every time that it's used in scripture, it means and is referring to a literal 24-hour day, but not every single occasion. For example, um, I see some examples here. We're in Leviticus 25.8. Yom means sometime. In Genesis 44, it means a year. In Leviticus 25.29, Yom means years. So So it's not as clear-cut as some might want it to be, unfortunately, for, for this case, I guess. But again, if you look at it in Genesis 1, 1 here, those who hold this view of a literal 24-7 creation, a young earth creation, is going to want to interpret this scripture as literally as possible. And so the most simple literal evidence for this view is just going to be to read Genesis 1 and, and take it literally and look at uh, day and night in ex- the example that we just read in, in, in verse 5. There was an evening and there was a morning, one day. And they're just going to say, okay, that makes sense to me. That's a 24-hour day. Well, and that's definitely well within God's capabilities to do so. One, and that's a very important, thank you. For, that's a very important point. Thank you for bringing that up. This is going to be a misquote, but it's all right. You guys can look it up because you're scholars. I think it was Martin Luther, but some ancient theologian said like, it surprises me that God made the world in six days. I'm surprised that he didn't make it in one snap of the fingers or something along those lines to simply illustrate this point that God is more than capable of doing whatever he pleases. Amen. God Amen. is more than capable of doing whatever he pleases. And so that that's a common, uh, probably unfair argument that this number one viewpoint might leverage at other viewpoints saying like, well, don't you believe that God could do it in six days? Like you're trying to come up with arguments to say that he didn't. And that's probably not fair because I think no matter what view we hold, an essential that, that we all hold to of the nature and character of God is that he can do what he pleases. That he is sovereign, that he is all powerful, and that he is more than capable of creating whatever time period he sees fit. All right, so that is that is option number one: literal creation, literal twenty four seven, twenty four hour days, seven day a week, young Earth creation. Okay, that is a faithful option that many intellectually gifted, brilliant theologians hold. Now, what about the second option? There is a second option, and we're going to get through a couple of these. But the, but the second option that we're going to look at and consider, just as a potential faithful option is one called historic creationism. That's a pretty big word. That is a very catchy slogan, is it not, for this... Uh, historic creationism. <laughs> historic I'm going to put it on a t-shirt. That's right. We're, we will start selling uh, historic creation t-shirts. No, we will not That's do not, that. We will we're not, not trying that. to endorse a view here. We are not endorsing a view. We are simply trying to explain several faithful <laughs> options. This view, historic creationism, was made famous by the, the famous Old Testament scholar John Salehammer, Okay. If you, I don't know, if you've ever taken a seminary class, if you've ever read anything that has to do with the Old Testament, you've probably seen Salehammer's name. And he would essentially say that Genesis 1 and 2 recount two great acts of God, okay? The first great act of God is seen in Genesis 1-1, which declares, as we've already read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we don't want to get too technical here, but the Hebrew word that's translated beginning does not necessarily mean an instant period of time. Uh, but probably means an indefinite period of time. Okay? Okay. So then, God created the entire universe, the heavens and the earth, in an unspecified period of time. Okay. But it was a definite act of creation of God creating the heavens and the earth. And so since God is not limited by time as we know it, it could have been... Exactly. (laughs) The face you're making. Exactly. (laughs) Could have been, could have been young, could have been an instant, could have been over a thousand years, could have been over four point whatever billion years, but it, it doesn't necessarily lock it into a specific period of time. And so therefore this, this view would be compatible with kind of the mainstream scientific assertion that the earth is old, that the earth is four point whatever billion 
years old. That would actually make sense biblically if you if you were to take a historic creationist viewpoint, which would, again is to say that that two great acts of God occurred in Genesis one, the first being God creating the heavens and the earth during an unspecified period of time, in a full act of creation in Genesis one one, and then the second great act of creation according to Salehammer is it's almost like that the heavens and the earth were the canvas for creation thank you that is beautiful that is the perfect way to put it that god in genesis 1 1 creates the canvas for creation creates the heavens and the earth and then we see god pivot and and throughout the creation week he paints the canvas that he prepares the earth for human flourishing and that is the second great act of of god so in this viewpoint, you have the benefit of, of looking at the days of creation then as 24-hour days, if you so choose. Uh, you could say that Genesis 1-1 is God, again, creating the canvas of all things, the heavens and the earth, in an unspecified period of time, and then moving into a specific act to prepare the earth. Salehammer would actually have an interesting argument here and say, hot Eretz, which is what we translate the earth, is actually better translated the land. Okay. And so he thinks that there's a special emphasis on God creating the promised land or the Garden of Eden. And there, there, there could certainly be something to that. And, and I mean, if you hold this viewpoint, then you very well might lean this way. But in all that, the question lies, why? Why would you move past the literal viewpoint, right? Yeah. And so uh, if we- Practically, look, I mean- Practically. Why would that be important? Exactly. Why are we, why are we splicing hairs here? Well, if you look at verse three, uh, as which we've already read, we see God's declaration, let there be light. God saw the light was good in verse four, separated light from darkness, called the light day. In the darkness night, there was an evening and a morning, one day. And then we see another day and another day. And then we, see, we I'm down in verse 16 now, where it says, God made the two lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. That's interesting. Interesting to say the least, right? Like, how can there be a day without the sun as we know it? How can there be a day without the sun as we know it? How can there be a 24-hour day without the sun as we know it? And so, so the point that, that the historic creationist would make is, is that's not a problem if the sun already exists because of verse 1. Mm-hmm. So because of verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth, boom. So the heavens could include... The sun. The sun. Absolutely. And then what we see happening throughout the creation week is God kind of bringing forth, ordering, ordaining, and preparing the land, the promised land, or the whole earth for human flourishing. So I hope that makes sense. That's option two, historic creationism. Genesis 1-1 is a statement of creation. Boom, it's all there. The canvas is there. It's an unspecified period of time. And then in a separate but significant act of creation, God prepares the earth and the land for human flourishing. So what's the next view? The next view, third. <laughs> the third view. Third. Thank you for hanging with us. We're, we're working our way through these views one view at a time. Maybe we'll have t-shirts of every... That might be a good idea. We can, we can make a little brand for each each viewpoint and, and just just to state that we're on the same team here. <laughs> That's what we're trying to say. We're all on the same team. Option number three, okay, is uh, what many would call the day-age theory. Now, if you hold to a literal viewpoint, you are screaming at us right now because you're saying, how can that be a faithful option? Why would anyone view the, day, the days of Genesis 1 as ages or as anything other than literal 24-hour days? So let's look at the text, right? Let's see why. Why would someone do that? What we see happening in Genesis chapter 1, we see Genesis chapter 1 close with verse 31, which says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, then morning, the sixth day. Then we see chapter 2 open with the seventh day. And chapter 2 says, so the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, 
and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Okay, so how does this apply? Did you know that there's no mention of day or night on the seventh Uh, day? Wait, I gotta look at this again. Yes. So Genesis 1 wraps up with God creating everything in six days. Okay. Then chapter 2 opens with the seventh day on which God rests. God declares the seventh day holy, and on that day he rests from all the work that he has made. And yet, on the seventh day, there's no mention of day or night. I see that. And if you want to think about it theologically, why would there be a limit to God's rest? I mean, God is capable of... He's God. He's God. One, he doesn't need rest. Two, if he were to rest, why would... Like, he doesn't need to to sleep for eight hours just like us humans in order to thrive and flourish. But textually, there, there's no mention of a day. There's no mention of a night. The seventh day seems to not end. Many theologians would think that this is a significant statement of God to say that God doesn't need rest. His rest never ends. He is holy continually forever. And he doesn't need to take a break. He doesn't need to sleep. He doesn't need uh, his rest to end. So his rest is not limited to a 24-hour period of time. That makes no sense theologically, according to this view. And that's the primary textual evidence for the day-age theory from Genesis 1 and 2. Another thought to consider here is uh, something that we see later on in Scripture because it's important to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So that's exactly what people who hold to this point of view, to the day-age theory, would do. And uh, they might look at 2 Peter chapter 3, and they might start at verse 5, which in which Peter says, By the word of God the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Peter goes on to describe and recap some of the events of the Old Testament. And then in verse 8, Peter says, With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. So they would argue that, man, we do see the Apostle Peter looking at creation, talking about God bringing the heavens and the earth into being, and then, just a few sentences later, equating the Lord viewing a day as a period of time a day as an age. And so that's just another example that, that the individual who holds it to the day age theory might, might look at. We're done. <laughs> We're done. We have one more. We have one more. We're not done yet. We're not done yet. So if you're still with us, if you don't call us heretics yet, you can go ahead and review this podcast anywhere. Hopefully leave us a review. Please don't call us heretics. Here's my phone. No, We're trying our best. <laughs> We're trying, yeah. yeah. We're trying our best here. We're trying our best to explain these views. We know that this is difficult, but I think one aspect of Christian maturity is to be able to examine and listen to views that are contrary to your own. As we talk about the aspects of creation here that are fun to talk about, that that help booster our understanding of the story of scripture, to understand the different aspects of it. We have one more view. One more view. One more controversial view. Can you hang with us? Can you hang with us? We're trying the best we can here. Uh, So we've we've gone through our views, right? We have number one, 24-hour day, seven days a week, literal creation. Two, historic creation. Three, day-age theory. Four, deep breath, Theistic evolution. Theistic evolution. Now. I like how you saved this one for last. I know, because it's the most controversial and because people seem to get rather angry about this. I am just hesitant to say that this is not plausible. Okay? I'm hesitant to say that this is impossible. So we want to present it. Once again, God is not limited to anything. Correct. And there's a lot of smart people. There's a lot of theologians. And I'll point you to a resource here in a second if you're interested in hearing more about this viewpoint. But essentially, theistic evolution would say that our God, our triune God, who's existed for all of eternity, created all things through the means of evolution, as we understand it scientifically. Now, 
that's difficult because that's not often taught in Christian circles. I got to be honest, I struggle a little bit um, because I think that we need a, a, a historic Adam and Eve. I think that's that's one of the, the tipping points for me. And if you can articulate theistic evolution in a manner that gets you a historic, literal Adam and Eve, I would count that as a very plausible, possible explanation. The resource that I would point you to in this is BioLogos. Uh, if you are interested in hearing more about the theistic evolution point of view, BioLogos is is your go-to. They have some articles on this that can explain it. So honestly, this is this is a difficult viewpoint because Christians often cringe at the word evolution, right? Right, because that's the constant battle between secularism and Christianity. There seems to be. There seems to be. There seems to be this battle. I'm not. I'm not super sold on having that battle. To be honest with you, three of these four uh, view- viewpoints that are faithful options to understanding a difficult passage in Genesis 1 can perhaps be reconciled with an old earth. I think that you see the classical battle happen between the young earth 24/7 creationists and the and the straight up evolutionists. And I understand that there's a lot of nuance that is needed to these conversations. That's not our goal here, right? Our goal here is to simply present a couple faithful options because it's an interesting topic that helps us better understand what God's creation is. One last point that I want to bring up on this is is how you view these things will depend on your hermeneutic. What is a hermeneutic? Is that a type of caterpillar? <laughs> Try to say it. <laughs> Hermeneutics is, uh, is the study of reading the Bible. Okay. And so a lot of this will depend on how you read the Bible. If you view the Bible as, as a book to be read literally... You'll be, you'll be more inclined to view creation through a literal lens. If you are more inclined to read the Bible literately, note the difference there, you are more inclined to look for specific genres within Scripture. And so you might look at Genesis 1 and say, I understand what it's saying. I agree that this is the authoritative word of God. I don't think that this genre is a scientific account of creation. I think that it is poetic, or I think that it is expressing theological truths about God. And you might land on, on a different on a different viewpoint of creation. You might even swing to the other end of the spectrum and, and view scripture as, as allegorical um, or containing allegory and, and, and typology and metaphorical elements to it. And, and I think that, that if you are committed to the authority of the word of God, the inspiration of the word of God, the inerrancy of the word of God, all of those are, are, all of those are faithful options. Again, all of those in and of themselves require nuance and could be an episode in and of themselves. The point here was to emphasize the fact that no matter where you land on this spectrum, on the secondary issue, we're all on the same team. We're all Christians. If you profess the lordship of Jesus Christ, if you profess the the triune nature of our God, you're a Christian and you have the freedom to examine the scriptures, to examine scientific evidence, to examine the things you need to do in order to arrive at, at, at a position that you are comfortable with. And that's okay. And you have freedom to do that. So it's been really fun to have these these conversations. And I think that it's just important to remember that while we can have an interesting conversation and maybe even have fun debating these different ideas, it's crucial to remember that at the end of the day, all praise, honor, and glory needs to go to God. Because regardless of his methods, this is his doing. Only his doing. And so I just want to maybe move on to a more practical point and say, like, while it's been fun to talk about all these different ideas, how does this tie into the story of the Bible? Absolutely. Thank you. That was beautifully phrased in amen and amen and amen. All glory, honor, and praise goes to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. No matter the means, we know that God is sovereign over it, and we know that God is is the one who initiated creation, and we know that God is the one who rules and reigns over the entire cosmos. And all praise and glory unto his name. Amen.
In that, the most practical purpose for us is to simply understand the significance of creation, that God did some significant stuff. God moved in a mighty way to bring forth creation, to bring forth the created order, to invite human beings to participate in his mission to redeem and restore all things unto himself. Our hope here was to hopefully, one, answer some questions as to what are the different views of creation, but also to paint the picture of how mighty and glorious and beautiful our God is, that uh, regardless of, of how and why and some of these in-the-weeds questions about creation, we want to point all honor and glory and praise to the Father and Son and Spirit who initiated creation, who reign and rule over creation, and who invite human beings as the pinnacle of creation to participate in His mission to redeem and restore all things unto Himself. Thank you for listening to us. If you want to trust in Christ, or if you want to learn more about making Him the authority over your life, or if you want to learn more about us, send us a message on our Instagram at WGMHQ. That's WGMHQ. We will make sure that someone gets in touch with you. This has been Warrior Podcast with Connor Shanahan. Warrior God Ministries' mission is to change the world by making disciples among military members and first responders and equipping them to be disciple makers and missionaries in their respective communities for the glory of Jesus Christ.